Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We got an interesting question this week from a customer who opened a bottle of wine and found some crystals in that bottle. Does this happen to you very often, Mark? I think the first time it happens to you, it's it's scary. You never want things floating in your wine. Yeah, you, and you see things in your bottle and you question it. But having heard about it in classes and then actually seeing it, I think it, it's a scary thing at yeah. first. I, I, uh, I was out for drinks with a friend of mine last year, the year before, and uh, we were sitting at a wine bar and she loves Pinot Grigio. So we had ordered Pinot Grigio or Pinot Bianco or or some light white that was on the menu and they poured it and we looked at it and right at the bottom of the glass, there were these tiny little crystals that kind of almost looked like salt crystals or sugar crystals. And she looked at it and she was like, is that okay? And I'm like, yes, it's perfectly fine. So where did you see them? Can you pop the cork? You saw them on the bottom of the cork? No, this one we actually saw on the bottom of our wine glass. Okay. So the question I had from someone was they saw them in the bottom of their bottle which I, mm-hmm. I've never heard that as often and they were nervous that there were glass shards or yeah. something in their bottle. I know I do sometimes see them attached to the cork when you pull the cork and sometimes you flip it over to see if there's wine stain on the bottom of the cork or how does your cork look you might have these little crystals embedded in the bottom of the cork. So those are actually tartrate crystals. You'll see this more often with whites than you see them with reds and what they are is the acid of the wine is coming together and producing these little crystals. So tartaric acid, which is the same thing as cream of tartar, by the way, will sometimes fall out of solution and crystallize. And it's just the acid. And that is is exactly what you're seeing there, either in your glass or in your bottle or attached to your cork. That was a great explanation. Why, thank you. I've never honestly seen them in a white. I've only seen them on reds. Really? I feel like I, I see them in white more often. I, I've never seen it in a white. Interesting. But, but I feel people see it and it freaks them out. Were we told this is also because of a process, they cold stabilize the wine, yes. these form? And I think that's when you see it more in the whites than you see it in the reds. So sometimes if a wine is produced in an area that is a very cold climate, they might stabilize the wine using very, very low temperatures. And often when wine, and especially white wine that's high acid, is exposed to these ridiculously low temperatures, like almost freezing temperatures, this will happen. So it's a, it's not a bad thing. It's almost a quality thing that they're doing something good to the wine mm-hmm. to help it. Right. And it, it increases the longevity of a wine because these are generally pretty delicate wines that don't have a super long shelf life. But when they do cold stabilize them this way, it is a more natural way of giving them a little bit of a longer lifespan. And they are edible, but I've never consumed them. So Kim, do they just dissolve? They don't dissolve. So that you're getting this weird glassy texture you in your just, mouth? You just, it's kind of like if you've got sediment from a red wine, from an older bottle of red or a big hearty red, you just kind of leave them at the bottom of the bottle or leave them at the bottom of the glass. So 
So let's move on to our first topic today from Pro Wine. It's a German wine festival site, and they were talking about the organic wine boom continuing in the world. So this was a worldwide study. And in the past, we saw some interesting information where the USA is the fourth largest producer in the world yearly, and they're the second worst for a vineyard size that is organic. So I'm always amazed at that stat, Kim. Yeah, I know. And we're such a country that produces so much wine and exports a lot of wine. You know, the EU takes a lot of wine in. Canada does. A lot of Asian countries take a lot of our wines in. And yet we're, we're sort of falling down a bit when it comes to our acreage under organic production. So under 3% of the vineyard acreage in the United States. But they're saying worldwide organic vineyards have tripled in the last seven years. So if you get a lot more uh, questions about organic wines, Kim? I feel like I do. And I feel like it's something that we see an awful lot of, especially from wines that are coming from other places other than the U.S. So we do see a lot of French, a lot of Italian. And the thing that really surprised me of these numbers was that Spain is actually the number one producer of organic wines in the world. So Germany was the biggest consumer for organic wines, but they were the sixth in the world for vineyard production. Well, they don't make a lot of wine yeah. in Germany. It made sense, right? Yeah. But I mean, they're, they're, it's good that they're consuming consuming a lot. The U.S. I can never understand. We always talk to people, and I think when I'm asked about organics, people are into organic food, but they don't look at wine and think of organics. Yeah, I think that's very interesting that there's this disconnect. Maybe it's a cultural thing. We as Americans don't tend to think of wine as food, whereas in other parts of the world, they do. You know, it's much more of a mentality of wine is a part of the meal, and it's not this separate thing. It, it goes along with your meat and your bread and your cheese and your vegetables. And like Germany, Austria, which is also a very small producer of wine, was overall the largest vineyard area of organics, which I think was interesting being so small. Right. For their percentage of, I think it's percentage of acreage that they have under cultivation for vines. Yeah, they were they were pretty up there for how much of what they grow is actually organic production. It, I think also the EU in general seems to be more on this organic movement. Right. It did seem, and especially with those numbers out of Spain, that they're able to do that because the government is behind them. So there are government subsidies in place that acts as an incentive for wine growers to convert their vineyards into organic production. So I can imagine that that must help tremendously because it's not an inexpensive task to undertake. I'm hoping the, the U.S. catches on. In the EU, they do a lot of regulation on what levels of sulfur in certain styles of wine, where in the United States, you just kind of max out the sulfur levels mm -hmm. when you talk and organics. So I'm hoping we pick that up. But one of the movements in the EU is they always looked at the cultivation of the grape as far as organic, but now they're moving that into standards in the winery. Right. I think a very nice thing to do. Yeah. And I think that that makes sense too. For us here, we have the way that the government regulates or labels organic wine. You have wine made from organically grown grapes. That organic certification sort of stops once the grapes come into the winery. So it's really only about how those grapes are grown. And then you have the designation of organic wine, which has to include everything. So 
it has to include how the grapes are grown and then also how the wine is made. And that's a very, very stringent certification. Like there are a lot of rules that have to be followed and it's and it's very, very regulated. It does seem to be a different system in the EU system and now they are spending a little bit more time, it seems, looking at both ends of that production. We stress that point a lot. You can see a wine that says organic grapes, but you do not know what happens after they're grown organically. So you have to be careful. And usually that's a reflection of the price of an organic labeled wine because the process and the certification costs a lot of money. Right. Certifying your vineyard is very labor intensive and takes a long time. It takes at least three years. It's somewhere between three and five years to have your agricultural area certified as organic. The number in the EU is staggering. 89% of all world vineyards are in the EU. I know. It's crazy. It's it's such a high number as far as wine production goes. In my store, I have an organic section. And I was thinking of expanding, but there's really not much out there that's certified organic wine for for producers. We were talking Mm -hmm. about this the other day. There's maybe a handful of USDA certified in the United States. Right. And it's it's a little confusing on the European labels because France has a number of different ways that they can certify something as organic. Italy is the same way. There's no one standard EU stamp that you see on a label that you can say, okay, this is the equivalent of a USDA organic seal. So there's this, I think, gray area, and it makes it very confusing for customers. They do have to have a certifying agent, right? but that is not regulated by the U.S. government. So a lot of times, you probably see this a lot too, Kim, someone say, oh, this is made with organic grapes, but it's Spanish and there's nothing that says that. Mm -hmm. And you might go to the website and it might say, yeah, we grow organically. But if it doesn't have that certification, agent, you don't know any truths about it. Right. It may say it in French or wherever the country that it comes from, but again, might be certified by an agency in their country. But then once it crosses our border, there's nothing from the U.S. that has tasted it or looked at it or gone to inspect their location and been like, okay, yeah, we certify this now as organic. So that can definitely make it confusing. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinliquors.com. And you can find out more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. Interesting article from bloomberg.com about the inter intersection, I suppose you can say, of wine and government or politics. So it seems that in response to some of the U.S.'s uh, issuing of new trade tariffs against China that China has reciprocated and plopped a whole bunch of tariffs on a lot of American goods, including wine. Yeah, wine's the only one we, we <laughs> care about. the only one we care about. <laughs> and, and the big impact is on the California wine industry because they're the biggest importers of wine into China. I had no idea that China was drinking so much wine from California, honestly. 70, $79 million worth of wine That's from California wine. alone into China. Big. Yeah, very big. California does export a whole lot of wine to other places. Canada is a a big consumer of of American wine and then a lot of other countries in Asia as well. And a lot of this has to do with this growing middle class in China that now has some disposable income and is trying to do a lot of things that are associated more with Western traditions. And wine drinking is definitely one of those. And like you said, Kim, the tariff, basically a tax of 15% they're adding on top of the wine that's being exported there. And the 
the middle class, as you said, also is developing this huge following. And it's not only California wine, but it's the expensive wines. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking it's not going to have an effect. They'll still be able to ship a lot out there because they're still going to want this. And maybe even it's going to create a bigger demand for the higher priced items. So you're thinking that the demand is such that this added extra amount of money on top isn't going to really matter. Yeah, because they already want the best stuff. Mm -hmm. They don't want the lower end mass marketed California wines. They're looking for the small production, high end wines. We've been seeing this out of a lot of French producers that now a lot of high end Bordeaux is going to China because again, like you said, there's this demand for these luxury items and these wines that have good high reputations, have prestige with them. And (laughs) this kind of leads into, I know we've talked about counterfeit wines in the past and these these issues are all kind of tied up together. Yeah, we, in the, the amount we're talking here, that's 75 million, it's been increasing almost 3% every year. So it'll be easy to, to see when this tariff takes place if that percentage drops at right. all. Yeah, that will be very, be very interesting to look at the 2017 numbers versus the 2018 versus the 2019 numbers and see where we go as far as importing and exporting California wine out of China. Next, we're going to explore a story that was in the Washington Post, and it had a local connection. It was about why is it becoming hotter to buy wine online? So there was a gentleman in Massachusetts who's a huge collector, and he wants the option to search the internet, find a wine he's looking for that he can't find on the shelves here in Massachusetts, and buy it from a retailer in the United States and have it shipped to his home. So this is totally different than being legal to buy from a winery in the United States and have it shipped to your home. So Kim, what was your take? Yeah, so this is really the the flip side of the direct ship issue that we've been talking about quite a bit. So it is now usually legal for a winery to ship into the state of Massachusetts to a private consumer and forego the distribution system that we have in place here, the three-tier system. So if you're in Massachusetts and there is a particular winery in, say, California or Washington or Oregon that can ship into Massachusetts, you can buy from them directly. However, you can't do that through a store in a different state. So that's what this is about, is that consumers are interested in purchasing directly from other retailers in different places, because given the way that our alcohol systems are structured, depending on what state you're in, you're usually at the mercy of the distributor. So whatever the distributors in the state bring in is what you can buy. And in this case, it seems that people are upset about not being able to buy wine that are imported from other countries and sold in other states, but not sold in the state that they live in so that they don't have any access to these wines at all. So this collector was big on Alsatian wines, right? which if you go into retail stores, the selection of these is very small. Right. There are a couple of producers that maybe make up, I would say, probably 70 or 80 percent of the wines from Alsace that we see here in Massachusetts. And he wanted the unique things to add to his collection. He was buying from retailers around the country and he was getting it shipped like FedEx to his house. And then I think what happened is when the law changed to allow wineries to ship, the FedEx and the carriers, they started to crack down and say, okay, this is now not legal. It is legal for the winery ship, but it's not legal for a store to ship to you. So they were then stopping the delivery. Seems sort of tricky. It was like, okay, it's that middle guy because you have to have somebody to be able to do the shipping. And it seems like this is maybe one of the ways that it was able to be stopped 
even though it wasn't necessarily 100% legal beforehand. But now it's the shippers who are like, whoa, 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 we're getting we're getting stuck in the middle here. And this guy was impacted because he was always buying his wines this way. And now there's a change and people are just assuming the law changed. So it's opened up to everything, but it is not. It still restricts these direct stores from shipping to you. I found it was interesting in this article that it stated that only 13 states allowed shipment from other retailers from other states. And I didn't realize it was so low. I actually thought it was a whole lot higher than that. But there are more states that will allow you to buy directly from wineries in other states. But it's just that you, you know, you can't go online and be like, oh, there's a store in Chicago. I want to buy from them and have them shipped to my house in Massachusetts. I'm glad you saw that too, because you know what the big thing all 13 have in common, right? What is it? It's they're mostly three tier states. So there's a Mm. distribution system that's being impacted if you're buying wine from someone else other than the local stores that are supporting these distribution right and and that's really what this comes down to is that there are levels in our system of selling wine for how it gets from the winemaker into your glass into your home and you have to go through a store or a restaurant and that store or restaurant has to go through a distributor who buys from the producer so there are these levels and there are a lot of people who are looking to change up this system they also mentioned the state of Michigan is being sued because they estimate there's 200,000 different wines. And in Michigan, you can only get about 10% of them on a store shelf. So people got together and they're saying, we want to get those other 90% of the wines. We're wine drinkers. So they are actually suing the state to allow these stores to ship wine to them. So stay tuned and we will see what develops in the case of these direct ship laws from not just wineries into other states, but from out of state retailers. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us online at vinitaswineworks.com and franklinliquors.com. A topic near and dear to my heart, pairing wine and cheese. Ah. Yeah, the foodie and the cheese person. (laughs) Gosh, I love cheese. And we just talked recently about wine and cheese. Wine, maybe not the best thing to go with with the cheese recently. So this is good to, to hit on this now. Yeah, this is sort of the flip side. This is why wine and cheese do work really well together. This is an article from the New York Post. They had a lot of really good examples of wines and cheeses that go really well together. And I actually really liked this listing because it goes along with my own philosophy with pairing food and wine, which you pair by weight. So lighter foods with lighter wines, heavier foods with heavier wines, and then kind of following these ideas of contrasts, but also sometimes a pairing is really good if you have similarities going on. So we'll see a lot of these are um, lower alcohol, and a little bit of sugar, maybe with a spicy cheese. Or on the flip side, you want to do a bold red with a bold cheese. So there's so much that has to do when you're doing food and wine pairings with just making sure that one half of the pairing doesn't completely overwhelm the other half of the pairing. Let's give some examples of good wine and cheeses together. Yeah, well, first, I'm surprised you didn't start with the scientific evidence that was stated in this article, Kim, because they said scientifically the flavor of cheese is enhanced with wine. So 
I've never seen where they've had scientific evidence. Yeah, I haven't seen many, many studies on this. And they said the palate becomes more sensitive when you pair it with cheese, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. So now we'll go into the pairing. Okay. Skin. So the first one that they brought up was Shiraz and cheddar. And this, this is a very classic combination of big, bold red with cheddar. Those just seem to be a really natural pairing. And again, I think it's just simply that you want a powerfully flavored red with a lot of tannins and a powerfully flavored cheese that has a lot of fattiness to it. And those things just go really nicely together. So this is my cheese. I mean, you cheddar cheese guy. Supermarket cheddar cheese <laughs> block, right? And unlike you with these other we're going to get into, but this is probably the only cheese mentioned here that I pair wine with a lot. And I would usually not pair it with the Shiraz, but it, it does work. What would you put with the cheddar instead? I, would, I usually a white wine. I like more oh. of the acidity of the white wine. And related to the cheddar, I just saw about uh, Cheetos and wine. So now I'm thinking oh boy. Shiraz and Cheetos would work too. <laughs> That's cheddar cheese, That's right? cheddar or, cheese. Or fake cheddar it's cheese. That's right. That really orange stuff. Um, so the next one is Cabernet with another kind of hard cheese. So either a Gruyere or a Manchego. I tend to do cabs and cheddar. So I think these first two are kind of almost one in the same. They follow the same rules. Gruyere is a Swiss cheese. It's what people will often use when they're making fondue. So it's got a different flavor than cheddar does, but it's definitely pungent. It's a little bit more stinky than cheddar, but I think that pairing it with Cabernet would actually be probably pretty nice. And the next one I know was your favorite, the Sauvignon Blanc and goat cheese. You're always raving about the oh, goat cheese, I love cheese, that combination. Right? So it's more the citrus aromatics with the goat cheese. Right. So it's the acidity of the Sauvignon Blanc the acidity of the goat cheese and then also that real slight vaginal sort of grassy note so sometimes people will pick it up in the Sauvignon Blancs as citrus notes or herbal or grassy and I feel like those flavors with the similarities in the goat cheese because it's the milk that the goat you know produces that overall the things that they have been eating and those two things just the flavors are very complementary to each other the next parent i thought was a little weird kim moscato and blue cheese would you ever think of that i i see what they're going for here so what they're going for is that sweet spicy pairing which i do with foods all the time so you want a sweeter wine to go with a spicy food because the sugar in the wine mitigates the heat so i kind of see what they're doing here but this is not a classic pairing to go with blue cheese usually the sweet wines that are recommended to go with blues are things like port you know heavier sweeter wines but it's this is playing on the same motif of sweet wines with spicy cheese i was thinking they were just recommending this because moscato's trending yeah moscato's hot you know port wine is trending yeah that's true not too many people buy a port but we sure do sell a lot of moscato now the next was chardonnay with brie yep so creamy cheese creamy wine you're playing off similarities between the wine and the cheese. I would also say bubbly wine with brie, but we'll get back to bubbles. So on a Chardonnay style, you're thinking an oaked Chardonnay, so a heavier oak? A little bit of oak, yeah, because you want those, I think you want those kind of creamy vanilla notes and sort of that that toasted nut kind of note that you get from an oaky Chardonnay. Yeah, I can see that nuttiness working well. Mm -hmm. Next, they talked Riesling with washed rind cheese. 
I would Explain have to try this washed one. washed rind cheese. So a washed rind cheese is a softer cheese. It's usually a little gooey and often on the outside will be what we call a bloom. So it's actually the mold of the cheese that you see along the outside. So sometimes it will be white. Sometimes it will be for these washed rind cheeses. It'll be like an orangish or a pinkish color. And you, when you slice through the cheese, it'll be like a, a runny, kind of slightly gooey. <laughs> Mark is just shaking his head here kind of a style. They are, for the most part, kind of stinky and a bit of an acquired taste. So I think that the the pairing of a Riesling, something with a little bit of sweetness to it, I think is to get over that, that stinky quality. I'm going to have to try this one because I haven't done this pairing in a long time. So it should be interesting. So this one was pretty similar to the Moscato. Yeah, that I think was so. a sweet ar- yep. aromatic wine with a stinky cheese. With and a slightly is, stinky cheese. This yeah. is the same type of thing. So we're going sweet wine with stinky cheese. So what next, Kim? Next, we had a combination that I haven't really done before, which is Pinot Noir with Camembert. Now, Camembert is a, is a style of brie. So putting a red wine with a softer cheese like this wouldn't be my first option but i what they were going for was the earthiness so sort of the earthy mushroomy notes in the pinot noir and how that would be reflected in similar flavors in the cheese so i can see that as a possibility i would just be concerned about the tannins in the red wine and the softness of the cheese i was thinking you would like this because of the say the delicate soft pinot noir with mm-hmm. the soft cheese yeah i wouldn't texture. do anything heavier than a pinot noir but it could be just that pinot is light enough that he can pull it off with this cheese. And next they talked about one I'm, I'm almost familiar with as much as cheddar, the <laughs> mozzarella cheese with a Pinot Grigio or a Pinot Gris. I kind of rolled my eyes at this one. So I'm like, okay, really light wine and really light cheese, but follows the same rules that we tend to talk about. You know, you'd, if you have a very heavy cheese with a Pinot Grigio, the poor wine is going to get overwhelmed. And the same thing with the mozzarella. The, uh, the cheese is very light. This wine is very light. So put them together and they can both shine a little bit. I would like a more Italian style Pinot Grigio versus a warm client Pinot Gris because I want more acidity, more crisp fruit. I agree. And mozzarella can be really fatty too. It can kind of stay, I think, on your palate, especially if you're eating it as part of pizza or if you've got something else with other other components to a dish. So I agree. I don't think I would necessarily want to do a warmer climate kind of richer Pinot Gris. Stick with the Italian. You know, this is one of those what goes together grows together sort of mentality. So an Italian cheese, an Italian wine, usually if you don't have anything else to go with, that is a safe bet. Yes, I agree with the pizza thing. All right. Fully. That's right. More pizza and wine. We can't get enough of that. So next food and wine suggestion is rosés with a Havarti cheese, which I haven't tried. And the only Havartis that I feel like we see are sort of flavored ones. You know, you'll see Havarti with dill or you'll see it with other herbs. And playing on that theme, I can I can see this working. I like the recommendation they said about dry rosé with a nutty cheese. Mm. Is this a nutty cheese? Not a nutty cheese. Or they were no. just saying in general a nutty cheese yeah. with rosé. No, okay. this tends to be a little softer. I actually find it to be a little bit less interesting sort of like mass market mozzarella that you would just shred and put on your pizza. I kind of feel like Havarti is sort of 
in a similar kind of a vein. It's a little, it's soft, but not too soft, easy to grate, good to integrate into, into other dishes. And now let's move on to your favorite, bubbly, as you talked earlier, champagne with most cheese. I love this. This is like, like champagne that. with everything. Yeah. This is like <laughs> one size fits most, right? Yeah, that type and, of comment. And honestly, it's, I feel like it's so true. Like the bubbles in champagne and other sparkling wines really do cut through the fat of food really, really nicely. So whether it's cheese or whether it's fried food or whether it's fatty fish or sour cream or anything um i think of the of all the wines in the wine world the thing that goes best with all sorts of foods is bubbly and the bubbles also refresh and clean your palate so i think you can work a different cheese in all the time because you your palate's fresh exactly yeah and bubbles have a slightly lower ph too so they're slightly acidic and that that adds to that that cleansing feeling in your mouth and they said champagne but i think any sparkling I think style anything. Really yeah works. yeah absolutely and then finally to round it out kind of going back to wines and cheeses that are from similar areas, they suggest Sangiovese wines and Pecorino cheese. So Chianti region sure. uses Sangiovese, yep. and I totally agree with this. The yep. salt and the, the acid works with this type of cheese. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pecorino is a, it's similar to Parmesan, but it is a sheep's milk cheese. So you have a little bit more of a gaminess to it than you get with Parmesan. And I think that that really can work l- really nicely with red wines and that again that saltiness like you mentioned kind of bringing out the the fruity notes of the wine so we always talk kim about temperatures of wine is there a temperature of cheese when you serve it i tend to try to bring my cheeses up too close to room temperature definitely not at refrigerator temperature i find that to be too cold you don't want them for cutting or just for flavor for flavor so softer cheeses can be at room temperature for harder cheeses like cheddars they're okay to be a little bit on the colder side They've got more structure. They've got more oomph. They can stand up to a little bit of of colder temperature. But for something like a brie or a camembert, and certainly for my blue cheeses, I actually tend to serve those a little on the warmer side. You get the full flavor and you get the full aroma of the cheese if it's a little bit warmer. Not unlike wine, honestly. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. We've enjoyed exploring the world of wine with you. If you'd like to get more information about our show, please go to on our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. <laughs>